Hey, everybody. It is game week again. The bye is behind us. The Seahawks prepping to face the Las Vegas Raiders. I had to make sure I didn't say Los Angeles Raiders or Oakland Raiders. You know, when you're my age, it's hard to keep up. But the Las Vegas Raiders come into Lumen Field this Sunday. And the Seahawks trying to make a playoff push. They go into the bye week at six and four. They get to rest, relax. They're relatively healthy going into this game, looking to make a push to win the NFC West, get into the playoffs in a year that nobody expected that. I was asked by Matt Holder, host of the SB Nation podcast, Silver and Black Pride, to hop on and talk about this game. And so this is a crossover episode where Matt and I are going to talk about the Raiders. Uh, the first part of the uh, of the interview is him asking me about the Seahawks. So talking about uh, what has led to their success so far this year and how they might match up against the Raiders. And then, uh, then we take a look at the Raiders and their matchup coming from the other side. Um, how has Devontae Adams' first season in the silver and black gone? Um, who is the most valuable player on offense for the Raiders so far? And why is it Josh Jacobs, who uh, seemingly had kind of run his way out of Vegas uh, as the team had declined to pick up his fifth-year option? Um, and uh, just how the teams match up and what we might be able to look for on Sunday. So Matt Holder and I talking about the Raiders and the Seahawks this week. Here's that conversation. What's up, Raider Nation? Matt Holder here from Silver and Black Pride. The Raiders are coming off a road win against the Broncos last week, and are looking for another one this week against the Seattle Seahawks. So for this week's Behind Enemy Lines podcast, please welcome Dan Viennes from Field Goals SB Nation site that covers all things Seahawks. Dan, welcome on, man. How's it going? It's good, man. Thanks for having me. It's uh we're coming off a bye week. You guys are coming off a big win. This should be a good one. This is this is one of those from the Seahawks standpoint that, you know, a couple of weeks ago, you look at this on the schedule and you think, okay, that's a pretty soft landing coming out of a bye. But I'm not so sure. This Raider team seems to be getting better by the week. Well, I think you're a little bit more confident than I am right now. So we'll, <laughs> we, we shall see. But I do, uh, I am curious because we'll talk about expectations in a second because I feel like there are pretty drastic expectations from the offseason to right now and how it's, this is actually played out for both teams. But I have a bunch of Seahawks fans. I went to college up in the Pacific Northwest, so I know a few, okay. of, uh, few of those people out there. Yeah. But um, even they were pretty down on the Seahawks going into this offseason. So I have to ask you, how much has this season exceeded your expectations? I, I don't think you can measure it in, it in any quantifiable way. It's the most surprising thing I've ever experienced as a, as a Seahawks fan. And maybe one of the most surprising things I've experienced as a sports fan, except maybe being from the Pacific Northwest, the only thing I can think of that might come close to this is the Mariners in 95 when they made the big run and, and, uh, and beat the Yankees in the ALDS. Uh, it's, um, nobody saw this coming. We thought it was a reset. We thought it was a rebuilding year. We thought they were punting the can down the road when they traded Wilson to the, to the Broncos for all those draft picks and players. And that Geno Smith would be a bridge quarterback or Drew Locke. I mean, there were some of us, me included, and I've called myself out on this a number of times, <laughs> who thought Drew Locke would be the best choice coming out of coming out of training camp, um, given where this team was this offseason heading into this season. But the overall strength of the roster, the contributions they've gotten from young guys, and particularly this draft class, and just the the revelatory performance by Geno Smith has completely changed the game. And I just I just got done doing a show this morning where we talked at length about draft priorities going into next season. And it's not quarterback now. And nobody saw that coming 10 weeks ago. Absolutely. 
Definitely, definitely. So I got to look ahead a little bit. You got a little bit of a gauntlet to finish the season. You got the Raiders, which is probably the easiest game on this schedule, if I'm being honest. Then you have the Rams twice, divisional opponent, 49ers, Chiefs, and Jets. So how confident are you in uh, the Seahawks making the playoffs and finish this thing, thing off? I'll tell you what, um, confidence level is pretty high. Uh, and you forgot to mention the Panthers. I would say the Panthers game is probably the easiest game. If I hate to use the word easy go, yeah. anytime you're talking about the NFL. Right. But, um, uh, you know, there's quarterback issues there and, and all sorts of issues. Um, it's I, I think confidence is extremely high because you can see 10 wins. You can see 10 wins on that schedule, especially with where, where the Rams are, how they're playing. We've, we still have them twice left on the schedule, and, and now they don't even have Cooper Cup, and their offense wasn't really functioning well before then. Um, they just released Daryl Henderson today. The Rams are a mess. Um, and then you got the Raider game, which is a little bit mysterious to me this week. We haven't seen this roster come off a bye before. Lots of young guys. Geno Smith playing for the first time on a regular basis in eight years. To me, it's a test. If they pass it, then they go to Carolina. Then you play a struggling, banged up Rams team. You can see 10 wins. And I think 10 wins gets them into the playoffs. Um, and then, of course, that pivotal matchup on the 15th of December on Thursday night football against the 49ers could be for the division. And that's obviously the easiest path is for them to outpace the 49ers. But you'd be hard-pressed to find another team that that seems to be coming together the way the 49ers are right now. So I think there's a path there to 10 wins. I think it's I think at this point, when you look at the rest of the schedule, anything less than four and two down the stretch to finish with 10 wins would be a bit of a disappointment. And that goes to your earlier question of how have expectations changed. It's mm-hmm. kind of crazy to look at it that way. Yeah, it is crazy. Had I told you two months ago, you know, you'd be sitting here saying you'd be disappointed if the Seahawks don't make the playoffs. I don't think uh I don't think I think you'd be calling me crazy. Absolutely. Point. Yeah, I would not have taken that bet. Absolutely. So you brought up a quarterback with the change with Geno Smith. So I'm curious, what does Geno bring to this office that Russell Wilson didn't have? He opens up the whole field. Um, that's the biggest thing. He makes teams have to defend the entire field. Russell Wilson, for all of his greatness and for all the things he did well, had some glaring weaknesses. And, and there are things that now with each passing week that we see another quarterback operating this offense and we see what Wilson's doing in Denver and how similar that looks to what happened in Seattle. He's really playing the same way there as he has here for all these years. He's just not getting the big explosive plays down the field that masked some of those shortcomings that he had. And that was didn't use the middle of the field and whether that was a height thing, you know, there's a lot of debate about whether that was just a preference or a comfort level. Um, He didn't throw the ball down the middle of the field. Those seam routes that we're seeing uh, on a regular basis. Now he didn't utilize the tight end as well as fans have always wanted him to, because we've always had good tight ends on the roster. Um, That's the biggest change. He operates the offense the way Shane Waldron intends for it to be operated And that just makes them a more dangerous team. They make adjustments quicker and they're able to do things to adapt to what defenses are throwing at them because the entire playbook is open. Whereas before, again, disclaimer, I love Russell Wilson as well as, as much as anyone. My closet is full of his gear that I can't wear now until he retires. (laughs) He just, he shrunk the playbook and it just made it more difficult for the offense to operate if a team had what it took to take certain things away. Gotcha, gotcha. So obviously just comparing Russell Wilson to, to Geno Smith, but let's compare Geno Smith to Geno Smith. What's been the biggest difference that you've seen in him uh, specifically versus himself in the past where he obviously hasn't had as much success? 
it's hard to compare what he's doing now to what he's done in the past because the sample size was so small. I didn't watch him when he was a Jet. And and mm -hmm. my only memory of Geno Smith before he was a Seahawk is when he was with the Chargers for that one year. And he, I think it was the third preseason game, kind of the most significant preseason game that year. We always played the Chargers in the preseason. And he absolutely tore us up in that preseason game. And I remember thinking, wow, I didn't know this guy had that kind of arm talent. He was throwing the ball over the field, throwing dimes, just, just throws a beautiful football. And so that kind of stuck in my head. But during the whole tenure when he was Russ's backup, every year I had hoped that we'd go out and do something else at the backup position, draft mm -hmm. a guy, develop a guy, find a guy with a higher ceiling. Um, Geno Smith felt like a journeyman, felt like a retread. Little did we know. I think the biggest thing now that he's had an opportunity is he's just really confident in his abilities. And when you listen to him talk, he, he knew that none of this sounds like a surprise to him. He's humble about it, but he's, he knew that if he just got a chance, he could perform at this level. Um, I think that's been the biggest thing. It's his decisiveness on the field, how he operates the offense, how he makes checks at the line of scrimmage. He's in total command and how decisive he is in actually making reads and throwing the football. I want to move on to the weapons for a second. And my first question is with DK Metcalf, Tyler Lockett, Marquise Goodwin, and D. Eskridge, is there a better four by 100 relay team in the NFL among wide receivers? That might win the NFL four by 100 relay team. Um, unless I don't know, D. Eskridge pulls a hamstring probably on his leg um, or <laughs> yeah. drops the baton. I, I mean, those guys have rarely been healthy at the same time, but there's a lot of speed there. There's absolutely a lot of speed. And, and I'll tie it in with the last question you asked me. I think one thing that's making this offense so effective is that they're using all those weapons. And there were times with Russell Wilson when Tyler Lockett would be invisible or DK Metcalf just wouldn't get targeted. Um, not just for a game here and there, but sometimes for stretches of games. There are, there's a moment in every game where Geno Smith makes an effort to get the ball to all of those guys. Um, and I think, I, I think DK Metcalf in particular, um, you know, coming off the big contract extension, he's had a good year and he's made some plays, but I think he's just scratching the surface. And I think that connection hasn't really, we haven't seen that big game yet of Gino going to DK. So I don't know, maybe coming out of the bye week we'll see it this week. Well, I say, I can say hopefully not, but, uh, <laughs> again, I would not be surprised at all. But yeah, I am curious because I was doing some research before this and kind of saw that the deep ball has been a big part of the uh, of the Seahawks offense this year. Mm -hmm. So can you describe how that's like impacted their offense? I saw something like nine of uh, Geno Smith's 17 touchdowns, I think, are on passes 20 or more pa yards past the line of scrimmage. And it's like with three different guys, too, which is kind of unheard of. Yeah, and that's something that Seahawks fans thought, you know, in moving on from Russell Wilson, that maybe we wouldn't see as much of that because that was the best part of Russ's game. Right. I mean, he, you know, he's, he's been considered for years as, as one of the best, if not the best deep ball thrower in the league. I think the reason we've seen it be part, such a big part of Gino's arsenal isn't just that he also is a very good deep ball thrower. Um, his ball placement and timing is, is outstanding. Um, but again, it just goes back to where you can't load up on any one part of the field and try and take it away from this offense where 
you know, you think back to the 2020 season, the let Russ cook season, when they opened up the playbook, not necessarily opened the, up the playbook. They just, they just allowed an increase in, in passing volume and he was throwing the football more and he got off to that incredible seven game run to start that season. And there was talk of MVP and then it went completely off the rails and he was terrible the second half of that season. And it was because teams adjusted and they started playing too deep and taking away the deep ball and the explosive play. And, and he didn't have the toolbox to adapt. Now teams can't do that. And, and if, if you try to, if you think that's what you need to do, then the Seahawks have shown they can run the football with Kenneth Walker and punch you in the mouth a little bit, or they'll just use the quick game, the adjustment they made against Tampa Bay last week, where it looked like in the first half, they thought they could get the ball downfield. Tampa took it away. So they came out in the second half. What'd they do? They started getting the tight ends involved again. They started getting the ball out quicker. They started using the short game, throwing the ball to Kenneth Walker out of the backfield and forcing the defense to adjust again. So I, I think it goes back to that. He's a, he's a wonderful deep ball thrower, but it's also just that, you know, teams can't really double guys and take, and take that away. Yeah, it's actually a nice transition because I was going to ask you about Kenneth Walker and opening up the field and kind of how that's kind of played off of each other because he's obviously had a heck of a rookie campaign since mm -hmm. taking over in, in about week six. So can you kind of just tell us about how they use Kenneth Walker in the offense and a little bit about on his skill set? It's interesting, and I think it's still evolving. You know, it, I'm fascinated to see what adjustments they make in the run game coming out of the bye week because Tampa took it away. And really, since Walker took the ball when Rashard Penny went down with an injury, um, they're the first team that's done that. And they really clogged up running lanes. Um, it'll be interesting to see if maybe the Seahawks go a little bit more with some inside stuff and some power and some trap. Because they really, they tend to lean on that outside zone game. And Tampa Bay's defense uh, really took that away and took those gaps away. It might not have helped that that the condition of that field was so bad, wasn't really conducive to a dynamic runner like Walker. But the, the thing about him is he doesn't need much of a crease. Um, you know, he's one of those guys that sometimes he'll have a couple of runs where he gets stuffed and you think, you know, the running game isn't there. But if he just gets that one little cutback, that one little crease, he's so dynamic and creative and his vision's so good. He, he just can instinctively find that, that, that crease. And then once he does, he's got the quickness to get to top acceleration uh, in a step or two. And, and he certainly has the, the long speed to, to hit the home run. So um, of all the storylines in this game, that's one of the ones I've got my eye on is, is can that running game bounce back? So I got to ask you when uh, Richard Penny's comes back, who's going to be the lead back Kenneth Walker or Penny? Well, we know Penny's not coming back this year. I do right, think right. it's, it's, I do think it's open for debate that, that the injury might increase the chances that he comes back next year. Um, he was just on a one-year deal, but you know, his market's not going to be what he'd hoped it would be. When he signed that deal, he thought, okay, I'm going to have a great year. And then I'm going to, I'm going to go out the open market. I think there's a good chance now that, that he, he kind of explores the market and doesn't find the multi-year deal that he wants and, and realizes this is a better place to be. But I'll say it this way, even if let's say the injury he sustained wasn't season ending, I think Kenneth Walker would have been the lead back. If Penny had suffered an ankle sprain, gone on four week IR and come back, I think Walker's the guy. Pete Carroll has talked about this guy from the day they drafted him in, in glowing terms that, that's, that I haven't seen him use very often. And Pete Carroll's a positive guy. He talks about his players in a positive light. He loves his players. Um, 
but he talks about Kenneth Walker in a way that I haven't heard him talk about any running back before, not named Marshawn Lynch. So I think that he was, he was destined to take over the reins at some point. Um, it just took the injury to make it happen sooner. Gotcha. Along the offensive line, the Seahawks are led by two rookie offensive tack or two rookie offensive tackles, and mm-hmm. Charles Cl- uh, Charles Cross and Abraham Lucas. Going to stop fumbling on my words here for a second. <laughs> um, both of them have been playing really well, and they played in the basically the same system in college, yeah. both kind of in that Mike Leach uh, air raid type of system. So, what do you think has helped them make such a smooth transition to the NFL? You know, it's interesting. Um, I wonder if 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 their success is going to help scouts kind of bridge that gap a little bit. You know, we've right. heard that for years that, that guys that play in that air raid system and they're the wide splits and they're always, you know, they're not in a three point stance or not driving off the ball um, that their transition to the NFL is steeper. Well, now we have two guys that literally played for the same coach <laughs> who helped, you know, make the air raid what it is today um, come into the league and have success. And granted, both of them still have work to do on their run blocking. But what I think it speaks to is just scouting. I, I think it's talent evaluation. And, and the Seahawks saw something in both of these guys that led them to believe that they could be effective in their scheme in run blocking. And they were able to look beyond the limited reps that, that were on tape. You also have to give a lot of credit to Andy Dickerson, the offensive line coach. It's his first year of, of being an, an, the, the guy after being an assistant line coach for years with the Rams and then coming over to Seattle last year. And you can't talk about two rookie tackles playing every snap and playing as well as they have without giving credit to the coach. And so, um, you know, they still have, they still have a ways to go. They still have development. That's the exciting thing. But I think the Seahawks have done a really good job too, of just really playing to their strengths and um, you know, kind of keeping them out of, out of difficult situations brought up the run blocking, which was something I wanted to ask you a little bit more on. Is that definitely that you brought that up as one of their weaknesses right now um, in the league? Yeah, they, but they're both physically able to do it. And and right. so I think they make, especially Lucas, like as much as cross has played really well as a left tackle in this league, being a top 10 pick, and Lucas has been the better player. And, and really I had a guest on last week that covered the Seahawks for years. And he said, he thinks Lucas might be a top five right tackle in the league overall right now with the way he's playing. And I think he's a good example of what we're talking about, where there's some technique things and just some instinctive things that he needs to learn and get better at. But just physically, they saw in these guys, both of them, especially Lucas, the ability to run block. And, And the thing about it, Lucas is, and Cross too, when they are in the right place and and they are making the right the right read, uh, they're mauling guys. I mean, Lucas drives guys into the ground. And that was, I think, something they they thought they could work with. And and to this point, they're right. So let's shift gears a little bit to the defensive side of the ball. And I think the Seahawks defensive line is pretty underrated with Shelby Harris, Al Woods, Uchenna Nuosa, and Puna Ford. So I want to give you a chance to little hype those guys up and tell us a little bit about each of them. Yeah, it's uh it's interesting because coming into the season. When I was doing my show, when I was talking to other Seahawks podcasters and analysts, um, we all thought the defense initially was going to be a strength of the team. We liked what we saw and we knew there was more there than the national media was giving him credit for. We thought the offense was the mystery. We didn't know how Geno Smith was going to perform and we thought the offense was going to be the weak link. It turned out early in the season to be the complete opposite of that. And this defense got off to a horrendous start. And so there were a lot of questions about the guys up front. Uh, They were getting gouged in the running game. Um, 
turns out it was a little bit of a scheme thing. And once Pete Carroll um, and Clint Hurt, the defensive coordinator, made some adjustments, it, it overnight in the first Arizona game at home, I think it was week five, where this has been one of the top 10 defenses in the league since then. Um, one of the biggest adjustments was getting that defensive line and putting them in a position to succeed, letting those guys do what they do best. They were trying to force feed them into this new three, four system they were trying to transition to. And it wasn't really what suited their games. To me, the MVP there is Shelby Harris. He was one of the pieces that came over in the Russell Wilson trade. He plays on the interior, although he will stand up sometimes. He's kind of a hybrid. And he's, he's one of the few guys on that defensive line that can penetrate. Um, Puna Ford, Brian Monet are more gap stuffing type defensive tackles. So is Al Woods, who at 33 years of age, I think, it, it seems to be playing the best football of his career. That guy will literally take on two blockers at a time. Sometimes you'll see more of a space eater. Harris is really kind of the only guy that can penetrate. Although I'll say this, one of the most underrated guys on the defensive line this year has been Quentin Jefferson, someone who's on his third tour, I think with the Seahawks, he's left and come back a couple of times. He was with the Raiders last year. Um, he's, he's been effective as well. And then those guys on the outside, you mentioned Nuosu. Was there a better, how many, how many free agent signings this offseason in the NFL were better than that one? I mean, not many people okay. knew, knew that name. You know, they, they paid him 10 million a year, but now that seems like a bargain and there's already talk that they need to extend him. He has one of the best pressure rates in the league this year. Uh, Tampa Bay bottled him up and he wasn't heard from much. Didn't get his name called much. So I'm looking for that uh, to rebound too. But he's been our best pass rusher week in, week out. And then uh, Boye Mafe on the other side, the rookie um, has been really solid. Hasn't been spectacular. Hasn't come up with a lot of wow plays, but he's been really solid, not just in the run game, but also pressuring the quarterback. And that's been necessary because coming into the season, the guy that we were expecting the most out of was Daryl Taylor, the second rounder from a couple of years ago. And, and he's had a really disappointing year. So that defensive front uh, deserves a lot of the credit for what's happening right now. And it's funny, you brought up a, a handful of, di of, uh, of former Raiders in there with uh, obviously mentioned Quentin Jefferson, mm -hmm. Shelby Harris, too. A few years ago, started his career with the Raiders. The one I did not even realize was still in the league, though, had to be Bruce Irvin. So I've got to, mm -hmm. I've got to get an update on old Bruce. How is, uh, <laughs> how's he doing? I'm glad you brought him up because I think you cannot understate what he's done for this defense. Um, I didn't know if he would have anything left in the tank when they signed him. I thought maybe it was a novelty. He'd sit on the practice squad for a couple of weeks and they'd see I if they had something. Yeah. Just give it a look. But it was evident from the first time he was back on the field that he still had a lot left in the tank. He's still as explosive at the at the point of attack. And the fun thing about Irvin, when he was drafted in the first round, the knock on him and the knock on the Seahawks, he, he was everybody agreed he was way overdrafted at the time, was that he was a one-trick pony. He was a speed rusher off the edge. He was too light uh, to be able to defend the run. And he never really showed at West Virginia that he had that ability anyway. He's made that a strength. And it's no coincidence that when he started playing on a regular basis and was elevated to the, the main roster, that that defense started playing better. Um, and now I think he just gets better every week. He, he, there were moments in that Tampa Bay game where he took things over and he really made life difficult on Tom Brady. Um, he's been a huge key. Good to hear. Cause he was always part of a, or a key part of a huge part of that 2016 Raiders team that always had, 
with how bad the last 20 years it always holds a special place in my heart. So good to hear Bruce is doing well. Same. And, uh, and I just, I'll say this about Bruce Irvin too. You know, he's a guy that one of the reasons he had red flags on him coming out in the draft is he had, he had a troubled upbringing and he got in some trouble and he made right. some mistakes when he was in college. And there were a lot of teams that took him off their draft board. And he's, um, you know, I've been able to interact with him in person a couple of times and, and he's just, he's a really mature, he's grown up. And so it's really cool to see he's getting another opportunity. I'm not so sure when he came here, when he signed, he made it sound like it was a swan song. Like it was one last shot the way he's playing. And he's not really that old. Um, he may have prolonged his career. I could see him coming back. Good to hear. Awesome. Seattle also took some, uh, some heat for drafting linebacker Jordan Brooks a few years ago in mm -hmm. the first round. I can't say I paid too much attention to his career, but I'm curious. Is that still the case? Is he's kind of uh, falling into the, into the bus category? Is he starting to shine? You know, it's Jordan Brooks, an interesting case. He, he, there were a lot of people that thought that linebacker was not where the Seahawks should have gone in that draft. Um, you know, there's the other side of the debate too, that it was him and Patrick queen. That was the big debate at the time. And if you are going to go linebacker, a lot of people thought, you know, queen would have been the better pick. Well, Brooks has proven to be the better player of those two since then, when they decided to move on from Bobby Wagner in the off season, there was this sentiment that, okay, that made a lot of sense, not just from a financial standpoint, but also because we have this, this burgeoning star behind him. Jordan Brooks led the, led the NFL in tackles last year, I believe. Um, if not, he was top three and, and look like a guy sideline to sideline, an impact middle linebacker. So we have our next Bobby Wagner. So let's, let's save the 16 million and let him go. But he didn't play well early this season. And there's been times this year where he just hasn't looked great. Hasn't looked the part of a franchise cornerstone for sure he's calls the signals on the defense and he and he's a solid player but he's had some trouble getting off blocks and, and it's hard to understand when you look at his tape maybe there's an injury there that we're not sure of um he does seem to be getting better in the last couple of weeks um he's been around the ball more um some of that may be that cody barton's played so poorly at the other linebacker spot that more responsibility's fallen on him i don't know he's been good but not great. And I think people want him to be great because of the draft status. So we'll see. So I was going to bring up Cody Barton because uh, I didn't even realize until I was uh, looking at the Seahawks depth chart, they're actually going to be playing. He's actually going to be playing against his brother at Jackson Barton, who's a offensive tackle for the Raiders. So ah, yeah, what that's can you right. Tell us a little bit about, uh, about Cody over there. Cody is a guy that, that, um, Coming out of Utah, I thought it was a great draft pick. In the third round, I thought that was really good value. I There was one game in particular that I saw him play that stuck in my head where, where Utah was playing the Huskies up here in Seattle, and he was everywhere. And in the run game, he was he was he was shooting gaps and he was um he was stuffing he was stuffing lanes, but he was also getting to the quarterback and he was so good in coverage. He had a cut, he had a play on a wheel route in that game that a, a really good safety would have made. And he, he's a former safety converted to linebacker. I saw those instincts, um, but he's really struggled there in the NFL in coverage. Although we had the pick against Brady last week that at the, at the time kind of turned the game around. Um, but he struggled to get off blocks too. And he's really struggled as a tackler. Um, he's a guy that, that if the Seahawks do what they're supposed to do this off season, um, won't be a starting linebacker on this team next year. He's probably a guy though that's he's he's worth a 53 man roster spot. He's a guy that can play all three linebacker positions. He has value that way. 
part of the turnaround on defense in Seattle, some of the schematic changes coincided with them going to more nickel, having an extra defensive back on the field, which means less snaps for Cody Barton. He played his best game of the year against Tampa Bay, but his snaps are being limited. So I think the Seahawks have kind of found a way to put him in a position to succeed and, and not rely too heavily on him because he has struggled in those other areas. So one of my draft crush, crushes in this last uh, draft class was Tyreek Woolen, and I'm still trying to figure out how he lasted until the fifth round. But even I didn't think he would have this much success right away. So how do you think he's transitioned so quickly to the NFL? I think it's just talent, man. It's I don't even think the Seahawks thought he would be a starter. It We all thought that this guy was dripping with talent, was uniquely talented at his size to play corner. The parallels that were being made to Richard Sherman's story seemed spot on. Former receiver, converted to corner, um, tons of upside. But he, similar to Richard Sherman as a rookie, although it happened much, much earlier, got the opportunity to play early because of injuries. You know, they went into camp, the Seahawks did, expecting their starting corners to be Artie Burns and Sidney Jones. And both those guys were hurt in training camp significantly. And Woolen had to play um, just out of necessity. And he just kept playing well. And he just seems to be one of those guys that gets it. And football comes easily to him. And he, the concepts that he's been taught, he, he takes them to heart and he's learned it. And... It's shocking to me. It's absolutely shocking to me. Not just that he's starting and being effective as a rookie, but that when you watch, when you actually watch the tape and you watch him snap by snap, that it's not a fluke. He's, he's staying with some of the best receivers in the NFL and, uh, and playing like an all pro. And, and the Seahawks found themselves another late round gem and a guy that's going to go to a ton of pro bowls. I also wanted to ask you about another rookie, Kobe Bryant. I think he's starting a little bit in the, in the slot there for Seattle. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And he was supposed to be an outside corner. He'd never played the slot. And, and it was interesting when they drafted both those guys within hours of each other. Um, I was really excited because I, I loved the upside just like you did of Woolen, but didn't think he'd be able to play right away. Right. And Bryant was the complete opposite. A guy that maybe didn't have as much upside, um, but had a higher floor, really, really experienced the Jim Thorpe award winner, uh, a guy that I thought was probably going to start as a rookie and just be a really solid guy at one spot while you develop the other kid. And it kind of went the other way around, you know, Woolen stood out from, from day one and Bryant struggled a little bit because they moved him to the slot again, out of necessity. Um, but he's grown each and every game and in, in his coverage his, he just gets stickier and stickier with each game. But in the meantime, during the learning curve, he's shown a real propensity to create turnovers. And uh, I think he has four forced fumbles, which leads the league. Um, he has two outstanding interceptions that were both called back by uh, penalties on other players that were unfortunate. Um, seems to be a guy that's always around the ball and makes things happen. And uh, it's it's pretty exciting to think that uh, two rookies take up three of those, two of those three defensive back spots long-term. Yeah, that's it's uh, the Legion of Boom. Feels like it's uh, coming back or reincarnating itself a little bit over there in Seattle. Let's hope because that term's been thrown around a lot, and the Seahawks <laughs> have tried a lot of different players to recreate that with and and some pretty spectacular failures in the draft. So, let's hope. Sure, I am curious though at safety how the uh, Seahawks kind of 
uh, replaced Jamal Adams, who I believe went down week one. Yeah. And that was a big part of the defensive struggles early on is he was such a big part of what they were planning on doing, not just as a Swiss army knife that you can move all around and do different things with, but for all the criticism he, he takes in coverage, um, he's an elite run defender from the safety spot. And uh, they really missed that. And he was a big part of that. And they had to, they were reeling from that and they had to adjust to that. Um, and there was a little bit of a gap there between when he got hurt and Ryan Neal got healthy because he was hurt in training camp. Neal's been a guy that's been on the roster for a couple of years as a backup. And every time he's been called on to play because someone else gets hurt, he's played well and he makes plays in the running game and the passing game. That's the guy that's replaced Jamal Adams. And he's played so well. He's, he's making some money this year. You know, the Seahawks can't move on from Adams uh, until probably 2024. The cap hits too big if they want to do it next year. Um, and then there's Quandre Diggs at free safety. And I was just talking to somebody this morning about how, you know, he signed the big extension in the offseason. He was playing at an all-pro level for the last couple of years and, and earned that big money. He hasn't been making plays. It's 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 too hard to say if he's playing poorly, but he's just not making an impact. Um, some of that could be for, by design, you know, that they've got him playing center field a little bit more often and, and, and that he's not around the ball as much, but, um, but overall Diggs and Neil have played well. And then, uh, they like to use a third safety quite a bit There's a, and they've got a young guy named Josh Jones, uh, who's in there sometimes in some of those dime packages as well. But, but Neil has been the guy that has made, uh, the loss of Jamal Adams, uh, less painful. He's played really well. Last question here. I was kind of surprised that Pete Carroll didn't just retire at the at, in this offseason with how that all went down. And I mean, these guys in his seventies, I kind of think he's going to be walking away at some point. So I was curious, do you have any idea when he'll call to a career? And is there someone that you're kind of looking at as his potential replacement? That is that question has the answer to that question has so many layers to it. You know, it's, it's when Russell Wilson was traded, there was a sense that, okay, Pete loves to build. He really loves that kind of that college thing all over again. And we had gotten away from that. You know, we had gotten into a four or five year rut where we were just trying to, you know, our, our salary cap was pretty, pretty stressed and having to pay Wilson top dollar. Uh, in, in addition to some other guys, they were just kind of trying to piece together the roster with duct tape every off season, hoping for lightning in a bottle to make another run. When they traded Wilson, there was some thought that, okay, Pete just signed a contract extension. This is it. This is his last run. He's going to try to build it up one more time, do a little two or three year rebuild, maybe get to another Super Bowl and then call it a day. He seems as energized as ever. Um, and Pete's always been really good at playing things close to the vest. More than ever in his career, he has said some things over the last couple of months that make it obvious that what happened with Russell Wilson really stung. Wilson wanting to leave, wanting to get out, orchestrating his way out, really ticked Pete off. And that he wants more than ever to prove that his way, his philosophy, and his culture that he builds can win without that guy. And I think there's some resentment there. And we're seeing it in, in you don't even, you can read between the lines, but you can actually read the lines too. I mean, he's, he hasn't pulled many punches this year. And, and in a way that, that I haven't really seen Pete Carroll do before, he usually keeps things very muted. Um, 
I think he's he's a little ticked off by how things went down. He wants to prove that he can he can put this thing together again and do it the right way again and and uh, and go on a sustained long run. It would not shock me. The fact that they believe that they have their quarterback now, that they don't have to draft a guy high in the draft next year and take those growing pains and those lumps. Um, <laughs> I can't believe I'm about to say this, but I would not be shocked if this goes continues to go well for the next couple of years if he signed another deal. I mean, he just doesn't... Well, <laughs> does he look to you like a guy that's slowing down or is... You know, I mean, you think about like Marv Levy at the end of his career, like it just felt like it was time, right? I don't know. Pete doesn't seem any older to me than he did 10 years ago. Yeah, no, I can agree with that. I mean, he's kind of, I kind of put him in like the, the similar categories, like a Nick Saban where it's like, you never really see if it's a, uh, see the age get to him. Once one, you almost wonder when it's going to happen. It's like the yeah. you know, like Tom Brady argument too. It's like, when's this, when's the clock going to tick? I will say this. If, if they were to win big next year, then I could see him, you know, kind of riding off into the sunset kind of a thing, you know, or, or if, you know, we can talk about whether the Seahawks are a legit Super Bowl contender this year. I mean, if they were to go on an uh, LA run or LA Rams or St. Louis Rams, Kurt Warner kind of a run and win the Super Bowl, you know, I I could see him riding off into the sunset. If that were to happen, I think Shane Waldron is the first place you'd look. Um, There's a lot of question among the Seahawks fans now about, geez, this guy, this guy's going to be a candidate for head coaching jobs, right? Is he going to get poached this off season? Um, I'm not so sure he has that kind of dynamic personality to, to really wow in interviews. It might take him a cycle or two, maybe to get a head coaching job. Um, but he'd be the guy I think, or Sean Desai, the young, um, defensive assistant came over from the bears last year, really well respected around the league. Um, he's a guy that I think would be a candidate too, which is interesting because I think one of the things that we haven't seen during Pete Carroll's tenure here is guys go on to get head coaching jobs other than Dan Quinn. Uh, well, Gus Bradley, Gus Bradley, Dan Quinn, those guys didn't do all that well. Um, but in the last five years, I don't think there's been a guy on his staff that even qualified as someone that was getting looks. So um, they got a couple guys now. Let me ask you a couple of things about the Raiders, because as I mentioned at the top of the show, uh, they're coming off a, a pretty nice win, uh, which also benefited the Seahawks. Get that Denver's <laughs> uh, first round pick a little bit higher for us. But uh, I think generally people have been disappointed with how things have gone in Josh McDaniel's first year there overall, where do you feel like this team is coming off that win heading into Seattle on a short week? Yeah. I mean, I think even though they are coming off a win, it kind of feels like this, uh, this too little, too late type of deal. Um, you know, like you mentioned, the Raiders are two and seven. They already beaten the Broncos earlier in the year. Um, Broncos obviously aren't exactly a, a great team in the league either. Um, so it's still kind of down on the dumps. I'd say, I think the expectations are still pretty low. I'm kind of in the case where I'm kind of on the team tank. I know that's not the, not exactly what they're going to try and do or anything like that. Um, but I'm definitely in the boat of uh, let's build for the draft and not trying not to screw up that draft pick anymore. At least, uh, <laughs> at least right now they're sitting at the four spot. But um, yeah, confidence is not exactly high with with me and the rest of the family. I think for the most part. So it was cool to see Devontae Adams get the uh, the walk off touchdown uh, in that Monday night game uh, or Sunday night game. Um, how would you rate his season overall? We're all looking looking forward to him going up against Tariq Woolen, who we talked about just a little bit ago in this matchup. Um, how would you rate his his initial season uh, in the Silver and Black? 
mean, Devontae's been one of the few things that's really gone right for the Raiders this year. I mean, he's got 10 touchdowns. I think he's second behind Travis Kelsey, leading all wide receivers in, in the league and uh, well on pace for 1,000 yards. I'm not sure exactly where he's at, but uh, he had another big, big week last week. So he's kind of been one of the, the few bright spots for the Raiders and that has worked out well. I mean, Derek Carr, I think, has 15 touchdown passes and Devontae has 10 of them. That kind of tells you how it, how it's gone and been a pretty good picture. But so far, the Devontae experiment's been been great and it's been a great return on investment. Um, you know, it, it sucks to have such a such a great year by him personally get overshadowed by such a terrible season overall, But um, which makes the losing the draft picks hurt a little bit more because there are obviously still a few holes in the roster. But with 10, they're, I think, projected to have about 10 more picks next year, can rebuild it. And that's definitely one of the things that, you know, if you're looking into next year to having hopes to, to get back to the playoff form, that's the one thing you can hang your hat on is they have, they have their guy outside. It's just a matter of figuring everything else out at, um, at one point. Talk to me about Josh Jacobs. He's a guy that um, <laughs> I've, I've experienced him as a fantasy football owner and uh, <laughs> been disappointed, but he's, you know, he's having a big year, right? They, they, they didn't pick up his fifth year option. So there's certainly motivation for him to play well this year before he heads out on the, on the open market. Um, and the Seahawks, as we talked about coming off a week in which, you know, the run defense had been really stout for about six weeks and then Tampa Bay gassed him for almost 200 yards on the ground. And so that's, that's a matchup I've got my eye on this week is how the Seahawks can match up against Josh Jacobs in that running game. What are we looking at there? Yeah, I mean, Josh Jacobs is the is the offensive MVP. All the great things I said about Devontae, I can pretty much say everything about Josh Jacobs has been this season and, and probably times two. He's been absolutely amazing, and he's been doing it honestly behind an offensive line that's that's played all right at times, That I think they do a good job of at least holding up their blocks. They're not exactly people movers, and I think when you were talking about with Kenneth Walker just needing like a sliver to, to be able to shoot through the gaps, that's who Josh Jacobs is too. He doesn't need much. He leads the league in like missed tackles force up there in yards after contact, all that kind of stuff, so... He's a tough guy. It's hard to take down. It's a tough guy to take down, and uh, he's definitely um, earning some cash in this offseason, but uh, unfortunately, it looks like this might be one of our, we're counting down the days for hmm. him with the Raiders at, uh, for the rest of the, of the foreseeable future, but he's definitely having one heck of a year. He's he's the key to the Raiders offense right now. I think you can kind of live with giving up yards to Devontae. They've lost plenty of games that Devontae has gone crazy in and most of the times when they win it's usually you can go back and look at Josh Jacob's stat line sees rushing for you know 140 150 yards and that's usually the games that they win so he's definitely the key to, to slowing down the Raiders offense and, and uh, keeping them off the scoreboard how are the Raiders looking health-wise any key injuries coming into this matchup um I don't think there's too many like as far as like at the injury report or anything like that um, partially because they have so many guys on IR right now yeah. uh their top corner Nate Hobbs has been on IR since I think I want to say week six. So he's eligible to return right now. I haven't heard any word or anything like that. If he will be coming back um, anytime soon, he broke his hand and had surgery on it. Uh, so this is about the timeline that they were hoping to get him back, which would be huge because they're very thin in the secondary. Um, and then on the offense side of the ball, we know for a fact, Hunter Renfro and Darren Waller both will be playing. And that's right. again, part of the reason why I was talking, telling you about with Derek Carr's stat line, why it's been so Devontae heavy. Both those guys have battled injuries throughout the year. Um, the Raiders' big four uh, of Adams, Jacobs, uh, Waller, Renfro, they've been on the field together for a total of 47 plays or something yeah. like that. And uh, that's obviously not changing anytime soon. So those guys are going to be key key out to them. And then they'll be missing a, one more linebacker, Divine Diablo, who was up there in the league and tackles um, before getting out. So those would be the biggest ones, I'd say. 
if there's one aspect of the the matchup, the Raiders against the Seahawks, where where you just don't think that the Raiders match up well, what concerns you the most? Um, to be honest with you, a lot. <laughs> um, I, I think probably the biggest one would probably be the secondary versus the versus the Seahawks receiving core. Um, you know, we were talking about it a little bit on our show where the Seahawks obviously have basically an Olympic 400 by one relay team out, out there that with a ton of speed. And, and those guys can make plays in the underneath areas, too. They're not just one trick ponies uh, for the most part, especially DK and Tyler Lockett. And like I was talking about, the Raiders are just beat up in the secondary. They're super young. Last week, they were starting an undrafted free agent in Sam Webb who I think is going to be a guy that can be a good, good player for him down the line. But he ended up getting picked on and ended up getting benched. Um, he's a Division two guy, too. So even steeper transition to the NFL. And uh, Anthony Averitt's free agent signing, but it hasn't worked out for them. Rocky Sin has been the one guy that's been solid, but he's I've always kind of uh, positioned him as he, he's a good number two cornerback for you. But right now they need him to be a number one, and he's just not that guy. And, you know, you're going up against guys like DK and, and Tyler Lockett, who are two of the, the better receivers in the league on their own, let alone have to cover both of them. That's going to be a tough one for the for the Raiders, I think, to answer. And I want to finish up by talking about one of my favorite players, because uh, for all of the justified criticism of Mike Mayock and his general manager tenure and, and failed draft picks with the Raiders, uh, he got one right. Because the year Max Crosby came out in college, man, I had him. I did a thousand mock drafts that year, and I had the Seahawks taking him in the fifth round all day long, every single day. And uh, Mayock took him much higher than the fifth round. Um, Max Crosby's just been such a terrific player. And going up against these two rookie tackles, it'll be interesting Interesting to see. Tell me this. I haven't watched the Raiders too closely. Do, do they move him around, or does he just come off one side or the other? Is he strictly left side? So he can stay. He he can move around. The okay. problem is Chandler Jones likes to stay on the right. the side. The offense is left. So Crosby then in turn just kind of sticks there. When they sub out Chandler Jones, sometimes they'll flip flop him. But for the most part, Crosby's going to stay on the offense's right, and then uh, Jones is going to be on the defense's left or on the offense's left. So uh, for the most part, we'll probably see more Abraham Lucas versus Max Crosby, which. Um, you know, you talk talking up uh, Max Crosby. I got to give the Seahawks some credit too. Abraham Lucas was one of my guys that I really liked in the, in the draft last year, especially mm-hmm. for him in pass pro. So yeah, it'll be a, be a fun one to watch. That's going to be a fun matchup to watch. And and thank you for mentioning Chandler Jones. Um, and and maybe that plays into this question. I had forgotten. I guess he was with the Raiders, <laughs> but he's he's been a disappointment in this first year of the big contract, hasn't he? Yeah, sometimes I think Chandler Jones forgot he signed with the Raiders yeah. too. It's it's been a, it's been pretty rough. He's he's gonna be making if you break it down. Not that I thought about this much, but uh, he's been making about fifteen million and he's got half a sack right now. So it's uh, not exactly the return on investment that the Raiders were hoping. He, I will say, he has like one uh, flash play, like a game that at least that seems to be the trend where he'll make a big tackle for loss against the run, or he had a really good pressure that should have been a, that should have been his sack, but. Yeah. Uh, you know, somebody else came and cleaned it up against Russell Wilson last week. So he'll kind of have like that one flash play where you're like, oh, you know, there's Chandler Jones. That, that He'll give you that subtle reminder. But for the most part, he just kind of blends in, which, again, is not what they were hoping for when they, they signed with this big contract and traded away Yannick Ngakwe. Yeah. Well, certainly Seahawks are familiar with Chandler Jones from all his years in Arizona. It'll be yeah. good to see him back in Seattle in that aspect. Uh, Matt Holder, thanks for joining me and talking Seahawks Raiders. Uh, let people know where they can uh, read your stuff. Awesome. Yeah. You can check my stuff out at uh, mholy95 on Twitter, also up on Silver and Black Pride, and uh, do some scouting reports for Bleacher Report, too. So draft time's coming up. Uh, give me a follow. I'll be dropping some clips on, on some uh, 
offensive or some defensive line and uh, linebackers this, this off or this draft season. All right. That's Matt Holder. I am Dan Viennes. This is the Field Goals Podcast, Seahawks Raiders, Sunday at Lumen Field. Um, subscribe to this podcast so you get notifications. My rapid reaction will be up a couple hours after the game on Sunday as the Seahawks try to move to 7-4 and four on the season. Till then, go Hawks. Go Hawks.